0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. The Texas abortion ban was national news this week after the Texas Supreme Court overturned a lower court's ruling. Over the last month, America has been witnessing one of the biggest abortion battles in the country since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They say Kate Cox had to flee Texas after a week of legal limbo of the time-sensitive abortion. The 31-year-old mother of two testified remotely last week. The case centered around a woman named Kate Cox in Dallas, Texas, which has some of the strictest abortion in the country. Kate is a 31-year-old mother of two. She has a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And she was pregnant with a very much wanted third baby when she found out that the baby had an increased risk for a very severe genetic condition called trisomy 18. Cox's fetus was diagnosed with trisomy 18, a chromosomal anomaly that leads to miscarriage, stillbirth, or the death of the infant within hours, days, or weeks Trisomy 18 is a genetic condition that causes major birth defects and severe developmental and intellectual delays. The condition kills 90 percent of the babies born with it before their first birthday. And can cause fertility issues with women in the future. Cox went in for further testing, further scans, Hoping, praying that maybe the early testing was wrong. But it wasn't. Doctors told her that the best case scenario, the very best case in this situation, would be that her baby would survive an hour or a week if she even survived at all. And yet still, Kate and her husband decided to wait until they got the full results of an amniocentesis at 20 weeks pregnant to make their decision. But when the amniocentesis came back confirming their worst fears, full trisomy 18, there was nothing she could do. She could not get an abortion in Texas because the state has a ban on the procedure after six weeks. Cox then filed a lawsuit against the state, arguing that carrying her pregnancy to term would risk both her health and her ability to have more children in the future— and so she asked for a medical exception to the state's ban. Today we are seeking a temporary restraining order to allow Ms. Cox to get the abortion that she needs now to end her suffering and protect her fertility. The court, a lower court in Austin, the most liberal city in Texas, agreed. The idea that Ms. Cox wants desperately to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to Lose that ability is uh, shocking and (laughs) would be a, a genuine miscarriage of justice. They granted Cox a medical exception to the state's abortion ban. I'm hopeful uh, after, you know, the decision this morning to have the medical care that I need here in Texas. And this pregnancy has been plagued with with pain and and suffering. But Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton came out and warned that Cox's doctors could face penalties if they performed the procedure, including first-degree felony prosecutions. Paxton sent a letter to Cox's doctor in three Houston hospitals Thursday saying, the TRO will not insulate you or anyone else from civil and criminal liability for violating Texas's abortion laws, including first-degree felony prosecutions and civil penalties of not less than $100,000 for each violation. Then Paxton appealed the decision to the Texas Supreme Court, which overturned the Austin court's decision denying Cox an abortion. To the abortion battle in Texas, the state Supreme Court last night ruled against the pregnant woman who had sought an emergency medical exception to the state's abortion ban, but her lawyers said... In an unsigned opinion, the judges unanimously found that Cox's doctor did not assert a, quote, good-faith belief that Cox's life was at risk, and so they would not grant an exception. On the day of the ruling, Cox said that she had traveled to another state for her abortion. In an op-ed in the Dallas News, she wrote this, I am a Texan. Why should I, or any other woman, have to drive or fly hundreds of miles to do what we feel is best for ourselves and our families, to determine our own futures? I agree. To me, the case of Kate Cox is an appalling example of the cruelty of near-total abortion bans— It is also a tragic rebuttal to the pro-life claim that exceptions to these bans allow for a doctor and a patient to make decisions in the woman's best medical interests. That wasn't the case for Kate Cox, who was prohibited from following the good-faith opinion of her doctor. And it won't be true for other women like her in Texas and in other states with similar bans as they grapple with the painful question of whether or not to end a pregnancy. Right now, There's also the case of Brittany Watts in Ohio. A woman in Ohio is being criminally charged for how she handled the remains from a miscarriage she suffered at her home. A detailed report from the Washington Post says Brittany Watts is being investigated by a grand jury for a felony abuse of a corpse Watts's doctor told her that her water had broken prematurely and that her fetus wouldn't survive. Watts was in and out of the hospital days prior to her miscarriage at nearly 22 weeks. And according to the Post, the doctors confirmed her pregnancy was not viable. When Watts woke up on September 22nd, she felt intense pain in her abdomen. She took multiple trips to the hospital and eventually miscarried into her toilet at home. Now Watts mourning the loss of her child, is being charged with, quote, abuse of a corpse and could spend up to a year in prison. And if women like Kate Cox leave their home states to get abortions in states with more liberal abortion policies, is it possible that there could come a day when such travel is made illegal? Even today, could Kate Cox be charged with murder upon her return to Texas? It doesn't seem completely improbable. As Ann Coulter, famous progressive heroine, put it on Twitter last week, the pro-life movement has gone from compassion for the child to cruelty to the mother and child. Like Coulter, and there's a first for everything, including quoting Ann Coulter, it is so hard for me to see how these policies could possibly be cheered on by those who regard themselves as pro-life. And yet, one of our own staffers Our brilliant researcher, Nirja Deshpande, is one of those people. Here's how she wrote about the Kate Cox case for the Free Press. No one can blame Cox, already a mother twice over, someone who knows what it is to birth and raise a child, for preferring the known of abortion to the unknown of what is likely to be a short and agonizing life for her baby. But trisomy 18 or not, her daughter was destined to suffer— Everyone in this world suffers. Euthanasia, by abortion or other means, she writes, seeks to address the problem of suffering. And in doing so, it puts us on the dangerous position of determining how much suffering we will allow another person to endure before we end their life. It forces us to decide who is better off dead and who is better off alive. Nirja continues— This week, former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum shared a photo of his 15-year-old daughter, Bella, who has trisomy 18. On Bella's 12th birthday, Santorum said of her, her joy and radiance is a gift to all those around her. Bella is so happy and proud of herself when she rides on her tricycle, swims in the pool, rides her pony, jumps on her trampoline, and walks down the hallway in her walker. Bella Santorum has gone through more hardship than most of us ever will, but her life, from all indications, is nevertheless full of real meaning and happiness amid the suffering. It is hard to say that Kate Cox's child should be born just to die, but in my opinion, we cannot declare ourselves to be the arbiters of human dignity and expect good results. Nirja's argument is a very powerful one. It goes like this. Who are we to decide? Who are we to play God? Who are we to determine how much suffering we will allow another person to endure? That is a very hard argument to lose. I have grappled with the fact that abortions have allowed us to decide who is and who isn't worthy of life, who gets born and who doesn't. Just look at the plummeting rates of Down syndrome over the past few decades. But on the other hand, I think of Hadley Duvall. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. She's a young woman in Kentucky who was sexually abused and raped at the age of 12 by her stepfather. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. And in her state right now would not be allowed an abortion since abortion is completely banned unless it risks the life of the mother, which, as we've seen in the case of Kate Cox, has an extremely wide and subjective interpretation. I don't want to live in a country in which Duval would be forced to carry that pregnancy to term. Here's another thing I know. The pro-life versus pro-choice debate has flattened this most sensitive and morally complicated issue into a crude, simplified framework that serves no one and certainly doesn't serve the truth. As Caitlin Flanagan wrote in a brilliant essay a few years ago for The Atlantic titled The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate, and I quote, The loudest advocates on both sides are terrible representatives for their cause— The truth is that the best argument on each side is a damn good one, and until you acknowledge that fact, you aren't speaking or even thinking honestly about the issue. You certainly aren't going to convince anybody. Take, for example, the comparisons some within my camp, the pro-choice camp, have made between abortions and minor procedures, as if abortion is nothing more or less than a tonsillectomy. That is a lie. And it amounts to nothing more than propaganda, as anyone who has ever seen an ultrasound of their baby will tell you. Shout your abortion is a slogan that, in my view, has helped turn the pro-choice movement from a legitimate, life-saving feminist cause into a morally deaf one. I had an abortion last year. It was an incredibly positive experience for me. I mean, I don't know where I would be in my life right now if I hadn't had the abortions that I had, multiple abortions, too, not to break. This is why having an abortion was the right decision for me, and I'm damn proud of it. Thank you. Here's Caitlin on Honestly, a few years ago, talking about the subject. Their relentless, relentless, politicized message is, it's like getting a tooth out, you're going to have zero feelings, and women are left feeling very isolated if they're not on board with shouting their abortion. I am pro-choice. My own stance, though, is that abortion is not trivial. It's tragic. And yet the life of the mother takes precedence— And the idea that a nine-week-old fetus is the same as a baby is as obviously untrue as it would be to claim that that nine-week-old fetus is nothing but a ball of cells. I look at laws in places like Denmark and Ireland, which bar abortion after 12 weeks, or Germany and France, which bar it at 14, and those to me seem like sensible compromises. This is also basically where the American people stand— Polling consistently shows that the majority of Americans agree on a moderate, limited pro-choice position, like Europe. 73% of American adults agree on allowing abortion in the first six weeks. Meanwhile, Republican politicians are willing to lose elections over and over again for these profoundly unpopular and extremely restrictive policies. These politicians will have you believe that they represent the will of the people, but— They don't. They'll have you believe that this highly polarized debate has no room for compromise or middle ground, but they're wrong. Extremes hog the microphone on this and so much else, but the majority of Americans want commonsensical policies that protect the life of the mother and that acknowledge that an abortion in the first trimester is morally different than an abortion later in the term. We have to listen to them. Because abortions aren't going to end. As Caitlin Flanagan wrote so wisely in that essay, no matter what the law says, women will continue to get abortions. How do I know, she asked? Because in the relatively recent past, women would allow strangers to brutalize them, to poke knitting needles and wire hangers into their wombs, to thread catheters through their cervixes and fill them with Lysol or scalding hot water or lye women have been willing to risk death to get an abortion. Do we want to go back to living in a country where that is the norm? Or do we want policies that allow women to end their unwanted or wanted but tragically unviable pregnancies safely? To get there, we need to have more honest debates and deep conversations about this topic— We need, as Caitlin Flanagan said, to face the best arguments from the other side. Thanks for listening. As I mentioned last week, we are experimenting with kind of op-ed style talks on honestly. So if you like them, we want to hear from you. And if you don't, we want to hear from you too. Let us know by sending us an email to tips at thefp.com. You can also tweet at us, Instagram at us, or send us a note by carrier pigeon. We love to read your messages, even the snarky ones. I know that abortion is a divisive issue, not just in the country, but in the world of the free press. We disagree internally, and among the 550,000 subscribers, all of you fall on different points along the spectrum. That's a good thing. We are really, really proud of that diversity. So if my view today challenged you— That's all good. That's all part of what we're trying to do here. Share this episode with your friends and family and use it to have an honest conversation of your own. And if you want to support Honestly, become a subscriber today at the free press by going to thefp.com. We'll see you next time.